All right. Well, hey, what a what a weekend, huh? Oh yeah. I mean, that was. Um, I tell you, you and I both are pretty damn busy and overload. <laughs> I mean, that's it's not even that word doesn't even do it justice. But it was almost, I would say, a relief knowing that we, the weather was so bad that we got blown out that we could slow that drive down and like re- recollect our brains for the day of diving that we did actually get in. Uh, agree 1,000%, uh, especially trying to gear up physically, get the gear together when you're talking uh, two days of two tech dives a, a day. So two days of two tech dives between 150 and 200 feet-ish with... <laughs> <laughs> fill in the mix gap first of all you gotta you gotta get all these bottles filled you know are you gonna have gas where you're going and then you have to make sure all the moving parts are gonna work they're they're checked out right so you have just going on one dive you have an argon bottle there's a rag you have your twins on your back there's two more rags you've got uh, a 50% a hundred percent there's two more rags then you've got a stage bottle there's another rag Right, yeah, 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 I, and it's funny because when when divers first get into scuba diving, mm-hmm. you know, for you and I, it's a little comical when they are stressing about a hundred dollars <laughs> on a regulator. Here. Yeah. Should I go? Should I go to the better one? It's, it's you know, it's one hundred and fifty bucks more, and then uh, you know, this whole this whole package, you know, the the nine hundred ninety nine dollar package. You know, is that good enough for me? Should I upgrade to the one for, you know, fourteen ninety nine? <laughs> and yeah, I get it. I mean, I was there too, like in the early days, but you know, at, at you know, for like the dive we're doing now, I think my light was fourteen ninety nine. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> my, my dive light. Yeah. It it takes four thousand some odd dollars just in regulators. And then almost that much in mixed gas. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. It's gonna, no, gonna dissipate into the to the water and out to the surface. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's you definitely. And I think a lot of new divers don't fully understand. You know, everybody wants to be a tech diver because they see the pictures and they look so cool. And hey, hey it's, it's it, they're just wearing doubles instead of yeah. a single and a BCD. You know, is what you, you first see, but. It, you don't see all of the gear. You don't see all yeah. of the costs. You don't see all of that training. You know, all of that travel. All of the like getting blown out one day and having three hundred dollars worth of gas inside the bottles. That three hundred, you, you, five hundred. <laughs> it was five hundred. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, right, right. And we got a deal. <laughs> Thankfully, he was a friend. <laughs> and where you can't just go to, you know, necessarily uh, another dive site just around the corner and and use use that same gas no your bottles are, are basically spoken for until you can get back out and use them it's tough it's a tough life and hopefully they're all you know the o-rings are all good everything's the valves are all tight because helium uh helium has a way of finding a, its way out of a bottle over long periods of time of sitting in a you know storage whether it be your garage basement or even a dive shop helium can uh go away anyway yes it's like that iceberg picture where you know they have that one uh, that's uh of success right and all you see is that little top and it's a beautiful iceberg and people think oh that's really achievable but you don't see the 
the bottom underneath, the, all, all the hard work, all the sacrifices, all the missed uh, occasions, all of the pain sometimes and the sacrifice that person made to get to that little tip of the iceberg. The sweat, the blood, the tears, etc., etc., is all in that under the water portion of the iceberg. That to me is is tech diving, if you're getting into tech diving. But I would even say a really good recreational diver has that to at least to an, uh, a certain extent. You're still going to put the time in and you're still going to practice and work. Maybe not as much or you don't have to do it as earnestly or disciplined, but you still well, have to on. do it. You still have to put the time in. Well, hang on. I'm looking at this ad here. It says technical class. Yes. Starts, <laughs> starts up. It's three ninety nine. Well, it says I need a set of doubles. <laughs> that doesn't. This uh, this doesn't look like to be that hard at all. For that class, it probably isn't. If that is the instructor's mindset, in in other words, if they honestly believe that to become a tech diver, all you need are a set of twins and the time to go, go into a tech class, I would steer clear of that uh, instructor. You're going to, you might as well just burn your money. Not that, uh, you know, nothing's wasted in the education department. There's always a bad example to go by, but you'd rather just skip that because that's your time too. Welcome back to the Great Dive Podcast, everybody. <laughs> You're here with your old pal, Jamesy. And your other old pal, Bubbling Brando. Bubbling Brando. Oh, we were bubbling this weekend. Yeah, we got some really nice dives in. Really, really nice dives. Bubbling. I think every exhale was uh, fifty-two dollars. <laughs> <laughs> A little less than that, realistically, but it was definitely dollar dollar bill going up through the water column. So yes, we just got back from a weekend of diving up in northern. Lake Huron, off of the most beautiful island of Presque Isle. Is that what Presque Isle means? Yes, the pretty island. Yeah, definitely a beautiful area up there. The water is incredibly, you know, it's that turquoise blue Caribbean looking water. And uh, the top side is pristine. And uh, if you're into outdoors and woodsy and lakes, it's gorgeous up there. Yeah, the... um the drive over alone is just, you know, gorgeous. But the real attraction for di- for divers in Presque Isle, under the surface, there lies probably some of the most pristine wrecks in the world. Uh, if you are into those woodies, into the wooden shipwrecks, you're not going to find anything like this pretty much anywhere else in the world. I mean, there, we have a couple more places in the Great Lakes that might have one or two of these. But Presque Isle has, you know, abundance and abundance of these wooden sailing vessels where the masts are still standing. Absolutely magical, magical sights, you know, of, of these ships in the, the mid to late 1800s that were just making their way from, you know, southern Lake Michigan around the Straits 
down through Lake Huron, you know, trying to, to make a couple of those last runs of the season generally. And we're breaking for some salvation, trying to find it somewhere out there in the middle of Lake Huron, which, you know, when you're standing there on the shore of Presqu'ile looking out at that beautiful blue water, that ocean-like water, I mean, you're talking, what, 50, 60, 70 miles away is land? I mean, it's... <laughs> you, you, you know, people have a hard time conceptualizing the the size of of the Great Lakes. You know, the the, the middle of Lake Huron being many, not uh, you know, many, many, yeah. many, many, many miles across. Right. Yeah. It's not like you can look across and see anything for the most part. Big water. They, they call it Lake Gichigumi. No, that's superior. I know they call one of the Great Lakes Lake Gichigumi. How's that? What do they call the rest? We don't. We never hear hear any songs made up about the rest, or any songs with lyrics containing the other Native American names of our our Great Lakes. Do we, Gord? Gord, you're dropping the ball, buddy. Well, actually, Brando, Lake Michigan, the state of Michigan, and Lake Michigan is actually an old Ojibwe word meaning large water as well. Son of a bitch! So Michigan means large water. Is that what that means? Thought it meant mitten, mitten hand. Oh, here we go. I got the Ojibwe People's Dictionary. So Lake Michigan is named after the word Michigami. A little different, a little different than Gichigumi. Right, but it, it means Michigami is large water. Oh, I thought it was mitten hand. Lake <laughs> mitten hand. Lake mitten hand. Yes. What do, does like Erie mean shallow water? Uh Funny you should ask. Does Erie mean low-vis diving water? <laughs> <laughs> Dark green water. But, Dark green water. But, oh, like, uh, that Pretty eastern nonetheless. End, that eastern end of Erie where we were a couple of years ago, I mean, although it was dark, it was green, it had that mm-hmm. freshwater greeniness to it, it was clear once you got down deep. Yeah, there was it still did the, open up. Yeah, the layer of uh, particulate and whatnot in the water. I think uh, we're seeing a lot of that this year a layer at whatever depth you might see it like we saw between 30 and 60 feet just a a layer of particulate blowing in but even up in the straits visibility wasn't as spectacular as we've been accustomed to in the past several years so this year i think it has a lot to do with the weather the winds the amount of rain we've had uh the storms well erie is actually Iroquoian word. Oh, Iroquoian. Erie Lohan. Wait, no. Erie. Which means hello and goodbye in Iroquoian. Erie Lohan. No, it comes from Ariel Hanan, which means long tail. It's the long tail lake. So I'll see that one's uh, Lake Erie. It's it's not that it's an eerie spooky lake because it's a one E at the beginning. Um, It is... Another Native American word. Nice. And and Huron also, although it's not as gitchy, goomy, michigami sounding as the other ones, but the, the Huron was a First Nations community that was in the area of where Lake Huron was. That's how it got its name. And Ontario itself is another Iroquoian word, meaning the Lake of Shining Waters. Actually, I'm finding uh, information here that said they were all called Gichigami. Actually, Gichigami. All of them were called Gichigami. Yeah, you, uh, 
you take this road, you know, 20 country miles or so till you hit the big oak tree, hang a right till you get out to the Gitchigumi, and that's where we're going fishing. Back in the 1600s was when the Europeans were over here exploring. and But, yeah, they came over here and, um, you know, to travel like the little waterways. They were just moving around in uh, the canoes, all the natives, and uh, they kind of learned a new way to uh, move about on the seas. And that was where, that's where actually we get a lot of the schooners that we have that were out diving on Brandos because those big, deep, hulled sailing ships that were using the ocean, those big, like, galleon-type square-sailed ships that were so popular at one point weren't very practical on the Great Lakes. And that's where the the flatter-hulled, square-backed, long triangle sailed you know schooners like we were just up diving on this weekend like on wrecks like the cornelia b windy eight were far better suited for the the choppy the choppy seas of the great lakes compared to that that the big rolling ocean well we had some good rollers over the uh the weekend some big old you know five foot rollers not humongous by any means but still uh Enough to make the the trip, uh, you know, well, slow us down a little bit. Way better than a five foot chop. Five foot chop is not diveable, really. Not <laughs> not no, sensibly no, we... diveable, especially holding, you know, carrying four extra bottles, twins, and camera and scooters. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know, that's a that's an ass kicker. And uh, old Captain Brian <laughs> called it right. You know, uh, yes, he did. I mean, it looked like we were not going to be able to get out either day and he said hey the wind's changing and it's going to have an effect and it's going to settle these seas down although they'll still be five footers you know they're it's not going to be that typical slap you around five footer it's going to be more like that rolling middle of the ocean kind of a wave instead of a just a choppy brutal beat you up wave beat the shit out of your wave which sounds when you're young that sounds like fun like i used to go out in like 10 footers off the coast of Lake Michigan in a storm on the jet skis just so you could be jumping those babies. So it would be wicked out there, but you would be having the time of your life, which now I think would kill me. I think it would it would it would roll me in a little ball like a piece of tin foil and just throw me to the bottom of the, the lake. It would be bad. <laughs> in pieces. Like just crumble me up. But back then I would I was eating it up. It was good stuff. But yeah, those rollers are actually quite, they're comfortable. They're easy to work in. Yeah, uh, not too bad at all. So yeah, we uh, had a chance to dive uh, a couple of really cool shipwrecks. Now there's numerous old woodies up there, right? But we got on a couple of the, well, they're all great, but a couple of really good ones, which were the um, the Kyle Spangler and the Windy 8. Yeah, two beautiful wooden shipwrecks. Like magical wood, bowsprit, mass standing, you, you know, you're just, when you picture a shipwreck, this is what you're seeing, right? Yeah, I, I think almost all of them are like that, though. <laughs> I shouldn't say all of them up there, but there's a number of them that are like that. They're beautiful. They're sitting on the bottom intact for the most part, uh, keel down, deck up, masts still standing, uh, reaching up, you know, 
60, 70, 80 feet from the bottom? You know, when I was up a couple years ago in the Thunder Bay area, stopped into one of my favorite places, the National Marine Sanctuary that we have up there to see our good friend Stephanie. I picked up a book about maritime history. It's called Great Ships on the Great Lakes. Um, This is a really cool book that goes through a bunch of the history of the Great Lakes, of just like how they formed is in there, um, like the early settlers and traders and going from sail to steam. And um, then later on gets into talking about the shipwrecks. And they talk specifically about the sinking of the Windy 8. And then they kind of go through with a bunch of photos, bunch of pictures. I mean, it's not your typical just history book. Got a bunch of cool pictures going along with it. But it says in here that in November of 1875, the schooner Cornelia B. Windy 8 left Milwaukee, Wisconsin for its last trip of the season. The ship was filled to the brim with grain, more than she could carry safely. The crew did not know that a terrible winter storm would soon sweep across Lake Michigan and Huron. The vessel was far from shelter when the storm hit, struggling through the rough seas, strong winds, and heavy snow. And the Windy 8 made it much farther than anyone could have expected before it sank. You know, in a couple of these other books, I know a lot of the, a lot of the history talked about, they never thought that the Windy 8, which was bound for Buffalo, never even made it out of Lake Michigan. You know, the, nobody ever had reported seeing it cross through the straits. So they never thought it even made it to the Straits, let alone fully into Lake Huron and around the the tip of the mitten there into that part of Lake Huron just off of Presque Another one of those December runs in the day where they thought, let's get one more. We can get one more in. Well, one, it was one the- more in. And- and uh, the the profits were so high that uh, you know, the profits the- were high because they overloaded the fucker. I mean, this is pure greed that that took this wreck down, and they constantly overloaded it. This was uh, nothing new for the old Windy Eight. So constantly overloading and pushing it further and further. Yeah, definitely surprising. It made it that far past the Straits in uh, in winter with the uh, s- snow. Cold yeah, well, weather, they, they actually they believe that the ship got trapped in ice. A lot of yeah. the, a lot of the yeah. stuff that I have read, you know, and they think that the crew tried to walk through across the ice to safety because they were trapped out in the water, trapped out on the ice. Tried to walk away. They they all souls were lost on it. Never found any remains of any of the crew. And as as we know from being down there, the, the lifeboat is sitting. Right alongside the ship. Yeah. I don't know if people realize sailing or even boating in the cold weather, you know, even if the water's not frozen, when it gets that cold, you know, we're talking single digits, a lot of time, maybe even below zero Fahrenheit. So that water sprays up on the boat and the boat starts accumulating ice and that ice weighs a lot and it starts just uh, making the ship harder and harder to move through the water, heavier and heavier. Yeah. And they believe that the Windy 8, basically froze and that's part of what has it in such beautiful condition on the bottom is because it was frozen solid and it kind of floated for a while and then slowly sank 
and settled how it settled, all nice and pretty upright on the bottom. You know, one of the original Great Lake shipwreck storytellers is, was old William Radigan. And although he called it the Cornelia E. Windyate, he had a magical way with words describing the old ship. He said she was wheat bound for the bottom. Wheat bound for the bottom. He says that during the first week of December in 1875, almost 200 years after the Griffin sailed through a crack in the lake, the Cornelia E. Windyate, a staunch three-master named after the builder's wife, lay at the dock in Milwaukee while her hold was slowly filled with 20,000 bushels of Wisconsin wheat. There were some dockside pessimists who inquired what business any vessel had to set sail for Buffalo so late in the season. The owners and Captain McKay wondered if it was wise too, but they took a calculated risk because others were doing the same and because profits from such a late haul were tempting. Built only two years before at Manitowoc, the Cornelia Ewindy 8 was a good performer in bad weather. Considered as seaworthy as any scooter in the grain trade at her tonnage of 332, she had secured an A2 rating. On December 8, deep laden with the golden cargo of wheat, she cleared Milwaukee bound for Buffalo, a proud sight with her three towering masts and spanking canvas. 48 hours later, a killer storm ripped across the lake with insane December fury. A week passed. The Cornelia E. Windy 8 went unreported at the Straits of Mackinac or at the Straits of Detroit or anywhere. She disappeared with all hands forever. Forever. Until 1986. Right. Well, the hands were disappeared. Forever. And th that was... Um, before the Windy 8 was actually discovered, he originally wrote that book in the, the 60s, I believe. But good old local Great Lakes living legend artist, uh, Robert McGreevy, put out a book a couple years ago called The Lost Legends of the Lakes. A really cool illustrated history of a bunch of paintings that he's done. He's got some really amazing, beautiful paintings and drawings of all these shipwrecks and, you know, reimagines them sailing the seas and some of them and, and pretty cool stuff. But um, he was saying that the boat was actually named in honor of Mr. Windyate's daughter. Really? That's why the E, maybe. That could the, be. The daughter is Cornelia Ernest Windyate, and the mother is Cornelia... Beatrice. Cornelia Bethany. Oh, maybe one's Elizabeth. Maybe it's Cornelia Elizabeth Windyate. And then Cornelia Beatrice is a fine choice for a, a good guess. McGreevy says, without any eyewitness accounts and no wreckage nor evidence of bodies washing ashore, speculators began to ponder the Windy Eight's demise. A December 1875 Chicago newspaper reported the schooner was lost on Lake Michigan with all hands. Another account agreed, stating the Windy 8 did not pass through the Mackinac Straits and enter Lake Huron, for she would have been spotted by a few other boats remaining on the lakes. Before the spring sailing season began in 1876, Chicago's Inter-Ocean requested captains traveling on Lake Huron to keep a vigilant watch for signs of wreckage. 
At the time, the general consensus concluded the Windy 8 foundered at the foot of Lake Michigan. The slim possibility remained that she did make it into Lake Huron. But what happened to her crew? Did the Windy 8 become so entrapped in ice that the crew attempted to walk across the frozen lake water to the safety of shore? None of the Windy 8's crew ever were discovered, alive or otherwise. The vessel and her crew had simply disappeared. And he goes on to say that a century later, Illinois diver Paul Ehorn discovered a ship completely intact on the bottom of the northern end of Lake Huron. The wooden name board on her port side bore the words Cornelia B. Windy 8. So it, it left in, in late November, November 27th, correct? Left Milwaukee in, on November 27th. And probably, who knows the actual distance it covered, but like those sailing vessels back in the 1800s, late 1800s especially, they were, um, they were able to cross that distance within two days average okay 260 miles they could do but like 130 miles a day four to six knots on on, on kind of average that's average that's not super fast okay so let's just say it was three days to get there so they're still in november that they get there and we know how many ships go down in november actually there's a song uh that details the winds of november the gales of november the gales of november the witch. They come storming. They come storming. Yes. Um, I don't know if I were a sailor back then. And the, and the other shipwreck that we dove, the Kyle Spangler, went down in November as well. Uh, if I were a sailor, like November, October, Halloween, I'm like, October hey, 31st. I'm on vacation until, uh, yeah. you know, late April, maybe. <laughs> There's no reason for me to be out there. You clowns! I know you're all trying to get a, a few extra bucks for another bottle of, of of grog or rum, me pirate buddies. But geez, uh, as many that went down, especially in you know in that 1800 time frame, the late 1800s and the early 1900s, stay the fuck off the water in November. Stay the hell off the water. God damn it! I'm with you. The number of ships that go down that time, it's just astounding. But it's almost like anything, you know, back then, like these were sailors needing to make a buck to help their family survive. I mean, it could almost be any worker related trouble where, you know, you've got dangers, but but you need to make the money. True. But but who's really making the money? The owners of the uh, the owners of the ship are the ones pushing the captains. Right. Right. And they just want their job. So I guess what I'm getting at is my social comment. My my comment on society is nothing's really changed. You're you're still being ringed out for the last penny they can get out of you as a worker where the owners are just, you know, of course, they took the risk and they, and they built the built the ship or they started the company or whatever. Just my commentary on society. Nothing. Nothing has really changed in, in uh, the hunt or the gathering of the almighty uh, dollar bill. Well, as tragic as it was for those guys in those days, it's uh, created a nice little uh, something to do on the weekend for you and I. Godless <laughs> <laughs> other divers all over the, the world, you know. Uh, you know, I, I got this other really cool book that I came across. Uh, I'm a nerd for all these 
shipwreck books, but Stories from the Wreckage by John Odin Jensen. He's got a really cool Great Lakes maritime history book inspired by the shipwrecks. These are mostly out of uh, Lake Michigan. He's, he's a Wisconsin guy, so he talks about it from that perspective. But the opening introduction is one of the coolest I've read describing shipwrecks in the Great Lake history. He says that heartbreaking and often tragic events, shipwrecks have occurred since people built the first rafts from reeds, sticks, or animal skins. Is that a raft wreck, really? It's not really a shipwreck. Is it a boat wreck or a raft wreck? I hate to be technical here, but the people need to know. We don't want to steer them... You know, at the at first, a raft was one of the original ships. Really? Yeah. Really? It was a I, it I was a mastless, I... it was a mastless, sailless, human powered ship. In other words, was it, was a, a six, it was a raft. You just defined a raft. Six foot by nine foot. <laughs> you just defined a raft. So, in other words, it was a raft. He says, although common in history, shipwrecks affect us in deep psychological and even mystical ways. This is the part that I loved. He says, we do not build museums devoted to automobile accidents or airplane crashes, yet maritime museums feature shipwreck stories wherever mariners in large numbers faced angry seas and deadly coasts. As narrative events, shipwrecks feature high drama with epic struggles against elemental forces of nature. Tales of individual heroism or cowardice, disaster or deliverance, life or death. This book includes several such stories, some of them highly detailed. Real cool. I thought that was a great description and introduction about shipwrecks that I I hadn't heard before. How, how, yeah, you, you don't have museums dedicated to fatalities very often, except in when you, when you look at maritime, it's it's you don't have it, you rarely have a maritime museum that's dedicated to all the great profits that were made and all the wonderful shipping that occurred. It's the view of the museum is that struggle and the hardship of those wrecks that occurred. Well, it, because it's an age old story. This is this is uh, explains it all. It's it's man and nature constantly since the moment we got on this planet. It's man and nature. Sometimes it works together. Sometimes we need to find a way to to overcome what it's throwing at us. And that man's struggle to to work with it and or overcome it has been the subject of literature since the dawn of time. It's been the subject of. Of course, you've got the museums showing it, and that's what this mu- the museums really highlight is man attempting to uh, control or tame his environment and operate within it and, and overcome it to a certain extent, right? You ha- how much literature do you, do you have man versus nature? I mean, lo- look at the Was Not Was song, right? There's three things, man versus nature, man versus woman, and man versus the empire brain building. Think about it. And this is man versus nature. It's, it absolutely it's is. Yeah. Now, it's the, the thing, with the, but the beauty of having, you know, why you have museums in, in different areas is because that's where, you know, that stuff would occur. You couldn't have it with, 
say, for example, airline disasters, because they happen world, you know, they don't just happen like in one area. Although, you, do, you, do they have a uh, Bermuda Triangle uh, museum? I'm sure they do. Yeah, so I mean, they're they're gonna see a lot of disappeared airlines, but no, you're, great, really it, ta- you're really taking the wind out of my sails, if you know what I mean. I'm not. I'm just <laughs> trying to 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 show you. And I shouldn't say show you. I'm just trying to point out, like, listen, this is this is an age old story the the man and nature thing, and and that's why we have museums, and that's what shipwrecks are all about is that struggle, and and in that struggle, you see man's true character. As you notice in literature, as you notice in when we dive these shipwrecks, that's kind of the thing that goes through my mind is what was this? What was it like when it was happening? You know, uh, in my various jobs, I've I've held I've been able to see uh, man at at very uh, rough times, uh, disasters kind of thing. And you watch and true character comes out. And a lot of times it's beautiful. Yeah, I like how he describes, you know, the, the heroism as well as the cowardice that can occur mm-hmm. in in these great struggles. And we've had a couple of cool ones, like our Morel story we did with Dennis Hale, right? Like, like that, like that's a those are amazing stories to me. And I've got countless books over there with with really cool, interesting stories of the those very things. Do you have a mahogany uh, library? It's, or it smells of rich leather, um, leather-bound books actually, in your mahogany library. <laughs> I think it's actually particle board, but I, but I am. It's Ikea. It's Ikea particle board, but I'm going to call it mahogany. Well, either way, you're kind of a big deal. <laughs> there are some leather-bound books over there. Smells of rich leather. My yeah, mahogany. but the, the the richness is from uh, from those little car uh, car tree centers I've got hanging throughout my office here. The Windy Eight rests in 185 feet of water, with her forward mass rising to a depth of about 93 feet, with the yard arm still connected to the forward mast by a thin metal pin. Despite the find, mystery around her sinking remains. No damage is visible on her hull, including the area along the lake bottom, and the deck cabin on the Windy 8 stern is completely intact, revealing the slow sinking of the ship. Even her windows remain unbroken behind their protective bars, and her staircase is intact, spiraling at 90-degree turns over three levels. Good old McGreevy tells us. And that's what we keep remembering is the, that the sight of those masts. Oh, yeah. Hitting those masts as you come down. Beautiful. The, the sight of, you know, the Windy 8, when I first dove it, uh, which is like the early, early 2000, you tied onto the mast and went down. And I have, I have old footage, too, going down. And then you hit the mast on the down line. And then you just travel down that mast. And it's really, really cool coming down there. Now it's uh, tied into the um, stern section. Right, which is cool in its own right because you come down and you've got that amazing yeah. view mm-hmm. of the length of the ship, the, the multiple masts, mm-hmm. the wheel, the lifeboat hanging off on the, uh, no, the, the lifeboat off to the side. But when you're doing a dive to 180 feet of water, 
it's not just a matter of you know grabbing your gear and going to 180 feet of water. Like I, I you know, I just had a a guy coming in that I know just got certified two months ago, <laughs> and and he's you know he's rolling in with a new set of doubles because he's uh, going tech diving in a couple weeks and plans to be rebreather in a couple months. Oh boy. I don't, you know, I don't know if if that's wise in my humble opinion. Well, I'm going to tell you it's uh, it's not. <laughs> I'm going to go out on a limb. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say it's probably not the wisest thing to do. I'm going to go out on the mizzen mast here and say it's, <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a good idea. Uh, because I t- it's and it's not that you are going to have a hard time dropping down to 180 feet. It's all the little things that can occur on the way up, right? And just it's one thing to think that every time you ascend, you're just going to grab onto that mooring line and walk your way up and follow what your computer says. But if that's the way you're doing your training for perfect conditions and nothing's ever going to go wrong and you're just going to go down, do the dive, and walk your way up and follow your computer... You're setting yourself up for a bad situation somewhere down the road where all of the training that you've put in, all of the experience that you were supposed to be building needs to come out of you. And that's hundreds of dives and years of experience to ready yourself for something like that. And training and training up the yin yang, not not just a, uh, you know, two two day class of a couple of dives and not really challenged. Uh, you really need to be pushed a bunch, and you really need to learn a lot. There's a lot to be learned. Yeah, I mean, it's it's more than learning how to use the set of doubles. <laughs> yeah, that alone is. This it, valve it, turns on. This one turns on. How hard is it? Right? It's just a set. No, there's so much more to it than that. And it's it's what you get many many dives and many many years after the training that slowly soaks into you that's that experience that you need when you're out in the real world yeah i mean uh <laughs> to the inexperienced to the to the novice to the person green into diving doubles means you just somehow strap two bottles together and have access to the gas within via a regulator somehow that's what two two doubles means, and then you you learn oh there's there's uh, you know metal straps that hold these together called bands, and they hold them securely in place. And then there's a uh, there's the valves and the manifolds that that give you access to the bottles, and you can have you know you can have an isolator to isolate one of the bottles. But okay, so I've just named the parts of the twins. But to be able to use them correctly and know what to do in the event of an emergency or a failure is a learn. A, it's learned skills, and it needs to become almost second nature. So there's more to it than there's doubles. They're heavier. It's the same as as diving one, but just heavier. But it gives me more gas. There's more to it. Right, which is thinking, you know, circa 1980, 1990. Yeah, you know, in, in as far as scuba world goes, but you still have people walking in, 
you know that that <laughs> see something come across on Instagram and I want and then you know you can go to any dive shop in the world at any time of the day or night you know online and order up all the equipment that you actually need to do any of this stuff and have it delivered right to your door the assumption is now you know taking a turn back in some ways in my opinion of people thinking that this stuff is all about the equipment that's why i'm just going to get a rebreather because you know doing it on open circuit becomes too hard a work and uh, i've got to be on my a game the, the the quick easy answer is avoid all of that training and just go to the rebreather nowadays i think you're right i think there's a lot of folks that are doing that um definitely a place for rebreathers i think I think the yeah. rebreather makes a lot of sense, no doubt about it. But I think you have to go to it. You have to master the basics, the fundamentals. You have to master them before you you put a piece of more complex equipment on your back that takes more awareness, or at least yeah, at least the the same amount of awareness as as tech diving, right? Yeah, I, I think using technology to get you there without the real ability internally and experience somewhere down the road, you're going to find yourself in a bad position. I, and I guess it's any, like anything like, like road tripping somewhere with uh, uh, strictly using your phone GPS and not having any idea how to, to navigate or, or figure out a map or, or to, to find out where you're, you are. Yeah. Is, is just as bad, you know, in some cases. Oh, well, yeah. And I think, even that's a little a little bit easier because when you take that that kind of thinking or that, that with that technology underwater, here's the thing about water and electronics: bad mix. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's one, only one thing I've really learned: your electronics are going to are going to fail you underwater. You are going to have failures underwater with electronics. Um, so you you should know how to operate without them or at least understand what the electronics did and be able to get yourself out of a, a situation. Yeah, and uh, and I, you can run that right along with your ascent line that you're, you're hoping to walk up yeah. hand over hand at some point is going to fail you. It's going to snap. You ever seen one snap on a boat? I have. Yeah, uh, yeah. So there's no longer an ascent line, or you're going up it, and the boat isn't attached to it anymore. And there's that little uh, jug at about 30 feet, 25 feet, whatever, 20 feet. And it's holding the upline and you're like, where's the boat? <laughs> <laughs> right, right. And when you have to make a real ascent, you know, not just it's a no decompression limit dive. You can just pop up if you had to because you're in the safe zone of diving but but now you know these people want to to get to a, a dive at this level well no now you've really got to come up on a schedule and you've got to switch to a dangerous gas right with right. a high partial pressure of oxygen and you have to not just go through the motions of switching it like you really need to do the decompression time yes yeah and so that means control your depth well really control your depth. You know, that buoyancy control thing again comes into play. So yeah, there's so much that goes into it that that is based on experience. You know, it's that 
again, I've come back to the iceberg. You, you, you're seeing the, to that person who just walked into the dive shop and just got certified, has six dives under their belt. I'm, I want to go tech. I want to go breather. I'm going to become a Navy SEAL. Dude, that's, those are all great dreams. Those are all great ambitions. And I'm not trying to tell anybody not to, not to strive for anything. But what I, I am trying to say is let's take it one step at a time and let's be realistic and let's get over a couple of the first hurdles. Yeah, let's let's try to get <laughs> ten dives and forty feet first. Yes, before we're at two hundred feet at on a breather. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Plus, you're missing a lot of the enjoyment of diving. You're you're missing right. so much just skipping onto the hard work por- portion to to see the less seen sights. But Brad, oh, we have this discussion a lot. We, we we've had it recently back when we were doing the the mastery talk and the the laws of learning and that that tends to be the case for people getting into this is they want the glory dives not the not the struggle but when you when you can look back at it you know when you look back from the the master's perspective it's the struggle which made all those glory dives worthwhile i think miley cyrus said it best your dive is a wrecking ball? What's <laughs> no. <laughs> these new these, song called wait, these guys are wrecking balls? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> That's what we should be calling these bumbling divers crashing into the deck of the shipwreck we're on? Oh, it's the climb. The climb. I'm so out of touch with today's utes. It's called the climb, isn't it? Yeah. It's about, it's about the struggle. I don't know. Maybe, maybe we're old fashioned. Maybe we are completely out of touch in in thinking that I don't think there is are. still enjoyment to be had on every dive, twenty feet, a hundred feet, two hundred feet, like everywhere in between. It's not just about doing the t-shirt dives. You know, it's it's not just about doing the the gems only. Like, how can you appreciate, like, a dive that we did, like, truly appreciate it without seeing all the other stuff that you've done along the way? Well, I again, I go to Miley Cyrus for inspiration. As well you should. <laughs> because I think she said it best. She says, the chances I'm taking, the struggles I'm facing sometimes might knock me down. But no, I'm not breaking. It's hard to know it, but these are the moments that I'll remember most. Yeah, just got to keep going, and I got to be strong. Just keep pushing on because there's always going to be another mountain. I'm going to stop there. I'm going to let you – I'm going to pause and let you think There's always going to be another shipwreck That's what she There's said. always going to be another dive. There's always going to be another – there's always going to be another quarry. There's always, you're always going to want to dive that quarry. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we say it a thousand times and we're just trying to, uh, I don't know, maybe help someone get more enjoyment out of their diving when they realize, hey, you're struggling. It's not coming easy to you. That's part of the game. That's like anything in life. If, it, if you quit on everything that's difficult, you're going to miss so much of life. Right. So stay with it. Learn it. Oh, yeah. No kidding. The uh, that's that's what makes it all good. 
in the end, when everything finally starts to come together and it, it becomes truly magical, it's because of all that hard work. Not giving yeah. up when things got hard. Uh, when you started to struggle with things like precision technique and control and, oh, and getting yeah. that awareness, like if, if to just give up and find an easier way to do it so that uh, you don't have to go through the hard work. One, I, I think that's cheating. I mean, that's my personal thought. And like, what are you doing it for? Like, well, you just, like you just you want said. it. You just want it for some bullshit reason, not because you're really there working hard to get there. James, it's it's. There's always going to be an uphill battle with everything, right? There's always going to be an uphill battle. Uh, you're going to have to lose sometimes. Sometimes you're just going to have to lose. You're going to fail. You're going to have to lose. It ain't about how fast you get there. Think about this. It ain't about how fast you get there. Ain't about what's waiting on the other side. It's the climb, James. It's the climb. Thank you, Miley. Bye, babe. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Brandy, Brandy Cyrus. That's uh, pretty good. I love I love Brandy Cyrus's. Did you see him when he was uh, in that little bikini on that wrecking ball video? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I did. His underwear. He's in his underwear. Are you kidding me? It's my, uh, it's my screensaver. What are you talking about? <laughs> That's classic. No, you're right. I mean, uh, it, so there's songs made up about it. There's books about it. There's, it's, uh, again, go back to the, you know, this common theme and the eternal struggle. And everybody seems to want to get rid of the su- struggle these days. The struggle's part of it. It's the good part, man. Well, yeah. So I, I hope our listeners walk away with a deeper, more spiritual feeling about scuba than your, your typical diver that becomes an open water diver with four dives and then their next class, they become an advanced diver, you know, with, with yeah. five more dives. Right. It's, it's hard to impart this philosophical discussion on that mind that already feels that they're advanced because they got this card that says they're advanced. So clearly You're they're advanced. an advanced diver. They don't understand, you know, when you pay $300 and you get the card regardless of regardless of performance <laughs> that says you're advanced you've never seen any struggle <laughs> it's hard to i think it's hard to get what we're saying but i think the people that have listened to us for nearly 250 weeks now i think are starting to to see that, that we're trying to make diving magical again and mean something deep within the diver. Make diving magic. Running for again, president. James. You got my vote. Running for president. You got again. my vote. I'll tell you that much. I am running for president of the Underwater Society of America. Uh, <laughs> president of the USA. Vote for me. <laughs> well, Make hey. diving magical again. I love it. I love that theme. I love that slogan. And, uh, I'm, I'm hoping that we're doing it maybe, you know, one diver at a time, if that's what it takes. But I'm hoping we're making an impact out there, changing some minds or viewpoints or even changing some lives. Because you can take what we talk about diving and apply it to every single aspect of living. That's why diving is life and life is diving. 
And I, th- I, th- I got to end on that. I don't know what else to say. Well, Bam, I'm, gonna, I'm dropping, I, I, dropping my you mic You can't right end now. on that. And I'm with you because uh, you know, we've, we've just gotten a couple of recent emails from a couple guys that uh, we will get back to answering. A couple of big, deep philosophical emails that... Really? Uh, yeah. But don't You're say really. Like, don't say really, though. Okay, okay. Uh, <laughs> more? Yet more? No, those are my favorite, and the, I I appreciate them because people are putting thought into it. They're actually uh, putting thought into, A, what we had to say, but B, into diving and life. Yeah, so Grant and uh, Robert, you know, most recently, uh, you'll be hearing from us shortly. Who knows? It might even become a, a show episode. I like it. Uh, because it's really? good stuff, and so we really? so we are we are <laughs> tapping into we are tapping into the people. I think. Well, the saga of this episode, I think, is going to fade away here, Brando, as we close out, just like the saga of the Windy Eight closed away. Bum, bum, bum. Bum, bum, bum. Old Robert McGreevy says that both wooden stock anchors, along with a large windlass, can be seen on the Windy Eight's bow. The anchor chains had been pulled out to the ship's stern, perhaps in an attempt by the crew to balance her weight while stuck in the ice. Also visible on the bow are cat heads, bits, a portion of the bowsprit, and several decorative iron stars, which are still attached to the stern's hull. Evidence shows the Windy 8's crew did not launch her lifeboat. It lies along her starboard quarter. The presence of the lifeboat and the absence of human remains suggest the slowly sinking Windy 8 became trapped in the ice, and her crew attempted to walk several miles to shore. Whether the Windy 8's crew abandoned her in Lake Michigan and the shifting ice carried the crew's boat to Lake Huron remains a mystery. And the saga of the Windy 8's final hours died with her crew. Just like this episode must come to an icy, cool death in the humid heat of August 2021. (laughs) The humid heat, the thick, wet air of of a steamy August morning near Lake Gichigumi. Well, there you go, people. Uh, That was a roundabout way to talk a little bit about one of our recent dives and the beautiful Great Lakes that I hope all of you get a chance to get out and enjoy one day because uh, they're magical sites. And we're here to make diving magical again. So visit a magical dive site, do some magical diving, send us a couple of magical messages that we can talk about on the show, like we have a few coming up. And um, hope you guys enjoyed that one. I did. I enjoyed the diving, enjoyed this uh, talk, and uh, hopefully they learned a little bit about some of those wrecks. And again, we just touched on on the Windy 8. We didn't say a whole lot about the Spangler, but... Uh, yeah, we'll have to get to that another time. Yeah, but equally impressive shipwreck for, the, for, the, for folks who get out that way ever and are able to do those kind of dives. A um, little bit smaller, but equally impressive and really pretty. So on that note, James, should we, should we sign logbooks? Um, I think we should sign logbooks. Uh, here, let me see your logbook, Brando. Here you go. Okay. Here. We clawed, we chained our hearts in vain. We jumped, 
never asking why. We kissed. I, I fell under your spell. A Wait a minute. No one you have could me. deny. I came in like a wrecking ball. <laughs> I, I, ne- I never hit so hard in love. Thanks for the dive. Jamesy. Dear Jamesy, uh, I, I think you have me confused. <laughs> <laughs> With someone else. I hope you have me confused. Although we've had a few nights that may have had. Who knows? <laughs> Thanks for the dive, brothers. Brother. All right, everybody. We'll see you next week. Safe diving, folks. Whoa! <laughs>